Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. In this video, we're going to be covering teaching and study helps for Doctrine and Covenants, sections 23 through 26. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And my goal is not just to give you scripture insight, but also ideas on how to teach those insights to other people. Now grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Some brief background on each of the sections before we dive into the meat of their messages here. Section 23 is a combined set of revelations intended for five different men that were close to the prophet. And each one is given just one or two short verses. You've got Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Smith, Samuel Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., and Joseph Knight Sr. And each of those men had a desire to know what their duty in the church should be at that time. The section heading to section 24 tells us that this revelation came at a time when there was intense persecution leveled at the church. And we're told that this and the following two revelations were given to strengthen, encourage, and instruct. Section 25, to me, really is the highlight in this week's scripture block. This is the revelation received specifically for Emma, the prophet's wife. And she was a most incredible woman and worthy of our admiration and respect. And Emma is going to stand by Joseph to the end through all sorts of trouble and persecutions throughout her life. And the Lord has some strengthening, encouraging, and instructive words to give to her and all women. And it really ennobles and uplifts all daughters of God. And then section 26 is only a short two verses long with a few instructions for church leadership. The usual focus of this section centers around the idea of the law of common consent. Well, with that as an introduction, there is one particular theme that I see common in a number of this week's sections. And to introduce that theme as an icebreaker, I like to show my class this little church video entitled Looking Through Windows. And you can click on this link up here to watch it if you'd like. It's only about two minutes long and it portrays a fictional couple where the wife is extremely bothered by the dirty laundry of her next-door neighbor that she sees through her window. Eventually, though, she discovers that it was her windows that were dirty, not her neighbor's laundry. And after watching it, I like to ask, why is it so much easier to spot and condemn the faults and mistakes of others rather than our own? And I think it's because the problems are there. If you look for faults, if you look for shortcomings, you are certain to find them. And we often judge others based on what we see and what's obvious to us. However, there are always so many things that we can't see. Like President Monson said at the end, there is really no way we can know the heart, the intentions, and the circumstances of others. For ourselves, though, we do know those things, so it's always a lot easier to be forgiving of ourselves or to justify ourselves. Well, I believe that the Savior sets the perfect example for us in such situations in sections 23, 24, and 25. 
And there are some verses and phrases here that remind me of a very famous story from the life of Christ that also teaches the same principle. And I'm going to give you this set of verses to examine and a list of stories from the life of the Savior. Which story best matches the message of these verses? And, and okay, I'm going to point out some of the phrases within those verses that stand out most to me. In 23, verse 1, thou art under no condemnation. In verse 3, thou art under no condemnation. Verse 4, thou art under no condemnation. And in verse 5, thou art under no condemnation. And that phrase is uttered four different times to four different people within that section. Section 24.2 says, Nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. Nevertheless, go thy way and sin no more. And then from section 25, verse 3, the Lord says, Behold, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, what's the story from the life of Christ that this should remind you of? The woman taken in adultery, right? Jesus displays the same approach and attitude here. When the woman was brought before the Savior by outraged and self-righteous Pharisees, they demand that he judge her. And what I love about this is that we get a chance to see how Christ judges people. And keep in mind that this woman had been caught in a very serious sinful act just moments before. The question was not whether she'd done it or not. She had. And her fault was obvious to everybody, and they wanted condemnation. They drag her out in front of everyone to be judged. And do we do this sometimes in our own society or in our own lives? I do believe that we live in a quick-to-condemn, fault-finding, moat-picking, stone-throwing, quick-to-judge, get-outraged kind of society. I don't think I need to give you any specific examples, but I'm pretty sure that you could think of some. I can think of some individuals in the public eye who have said something wrong, uh, something a little insensitive or misguided. They made a mistake. And then the media and the general public calls for their head. Even apologies or a recognition of their error isn't good enough. No, no, they have to lose their job. They need to be canceled. They need to be made a public example of. And I see the same kind of thing playing out on social media when somebody is caught on tape doing something or saying something embarrassing. Or maybe you notice this trend in your own families or relationships. Is there a better way? Well, what does Jesus do with the woman taken in adultery? Well, at first he ignores them. He, he writes on the ground. And maybe that's the first way that we could deal with these kinds of things. Try to ignore them. But that doesn't work. They demand a judgment. So next he gives the famous line, He who is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Which is just brilliant. It's like he's saying, Oh, okay, so you're so eager to judge somebody. Let me give you somebody to judge. Yourselves which is really where the major thrust of our judgment should be leveled, right? Since we are more intimately acquainted with our own hearts and intentions and circumstances, we are really the best ones equipped to judge ourselves. 
And that self-conviction clears the courtyard. And Jesus knew that this was not the kind of conversation that was supposed to be out on public display for everybody to watch. That judgment needed to happen between him and her alone. And it's the same with us. We don't need to parade around the faults and mistakes and the sins of others for all to see. And in that situation, Jesus was the only one justified to throw a rock. He was without sin. And you know what does he do? He says, neither do I condemn thee. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He refuses to pass a final judgment on her. So back to section 23. Do you see that same spirit here? To Oliver and Hiram and Samuel and Joseph Smith Sr., he assures each of them that they are under no condemnation. Now, I'm not sure why he doesn't say it to Joseph Knight Sr., and I'm not going to call this good brother into question or make the assumption that God was condemning him just because it's left out. I like to focus on the fact that Jesus is slow to condemn and quick to offer hope. One of the major messages of the Doctrine and Covenants, and indeed all Scripture, is the mercy and the grace of God. There are so many instances of the Lord forgiving frankly, quickly, willingly, and graciously. But what I also love is the balancing principle in section 24, verse 2. Does God just condone our sins and transgressions? Does he tell us that they're no big deal? He just forgives, no questions asked? Is that the spirit of this whole thing? No, no, it's not true of the woman taken in adultery, and it's not true here in the Doctrine and Covenants. He says, Nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. He's not excusing them. He's not condoning their sins or mistakes. There's no excuse for them. God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. But then he gives another nevertheless. Nevertheless, go thy way and sin no more which is the exact phrase that he, he says to the woman taken in adultery. She had sinned, seriously, and Jesus was not okay with it. She needed to change. There was no condemnation at that point, but she still needed to put her sinful past behind her. The same with Joseph here. God was offering him another chance as well. Back in 23, some of the individuals are also given instructive warnings of future problems. He tells Oliver to beware of pride, lest he should enter into temptation. And if you know your church history, that will be a problem for Oliver in the future. It's eventually going to lead him to distance himself from the church for a time. To Joseph Knight Sr., he says that he needs to take up his cross, in the which you must pray vocally before the world, as well as in secret, and in your family, and among your friends, and in all places. Perhaps Joseph Knight was one of those individuals that didn't feel comfortable publicly expressing his faith or testimony in prayer. This must have been a difficult thing for him. And perhaps he was excusing himself because of his own personal challenges. In section 25, Emma is also instructed to be meek and to beware of pride. So, so God asks us to make changes, to repent, to progress, to stop sinning. They are under no condemnation if they are willing to change and recognize their errors. 
If they are, then they should go their way with hope and peace in their heart. Back to the woman taken in adultery. What was the final result of Christ's approach to this serious sin of hers? Joseph Smith added something to that story in his inspired translation of the Bible. And I'm baffled to this day why it's not in the footnotes, because it's such a powerful message. He adds, And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. So it worked for her. She changed. She believed. She glorified God. The power of not condemning changed her. There was a happy ending to that story. The other outcome could have been a dead woman on the pavement of the temple. Rather than that tragic end, we end with a woman walking away, glorifying God with a change of heart, with a newfound hope and faith. So to liken the scriptures, what do you think is the lesson for us? Maybe it could be this truth. When we see the errors of others, if we don't condemn, we may inspire hope and change in them. So the next time that we see the faults of others, the next time we hear of somebody's mistakes, the next time a person's transgressions or shortcomings are painfully obvious and presented to us, hopefully we won't be too quick to condemn, to throw a stone, to get outraged, to demand punishment. I hope that we can look to Christ as an example in all of this and look inward first and drop our stones and give people another chance. Who knows but that they might leave glorifying God and changing their lives for the better. Still, by the same token, don't forget the balancing principle. We don't excuse these things either. We realize that justice must be served, and I do believe that the attitude of the transgressor must be taken into consideration. If they're defiant, unrepentant, determined to continue in their ways, then we're probably justified in taking a different course of action. But if the attitude is right, I believe that we would do well to follow the Savior's lead in these kinds of situations. If we really want somebody to judge, Let's judge ourselves first. Or better yet, leave all the judgment to Christ. Well, moving on to section 24. For an icebreaker on this section, I like to do the following object lesson. I pull out a very dull and rough-looking rock. And then I pull out a polished rock that looks something like this. And I ask, how does a rock like this, the rough one, become a rock like this, the polished one. And what I do next is I pull out a rock tumbler and I show them how it works. You place the rough rock into the tumbler with a bunch of other rocks. You turn it on and leave it running for days, non-stop, 24-7. And after a long time, you open up the tumbler and voila, you have beautiful polished rocks. Now I have the benefit of having a son that was into rock polishing for a time, and so I actually do have a rock tumbler and some examples of polished rocks. You may not have that luxury, but maybe you could borrow one. 
And they do have them for sale on Amazon for about 60 bucks. And I'll provide a link in the video description if you're interested. But that may be a, a bit expensive for just one lesson. But you could show a picture or a video of one if you'd like. Then I say, guess what object Joseph Smith compared himself to? He said that he was like a rough stone rolling. And then I show them the following quote. I am like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain. And the only polishing I get is when some corner gets rubbed off by coming in contact with something else. Striking with accelerated force against religious bigotry, priestcraft, lawyercraft, doctorcraft, lying editors, suborned judges and jurors, and the authority of the perjured executives backed by mobs, blasphemers, licentious, and corrupt men and women. All hell knocking off a corner here and a corner there. Thus I will become a smooth and polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty. So, so then I ask, how did Joseph go from this to this? He came into contact with a lot of opposition and persecution throughout his life. Joseph Smith had a rock tumbler of a life. And, and maybe you can brainstorm this a little bit. Can you name some of the trials and opposition that Joseph was going to face throughout his life? And there's so much that they could bring up. Joseph is going to bury children. He'll be beaten. He'll be tarred and feathered, falsely arrested, thrown into prison, betrayed by those closest to him, ridiculed, live in poverty, and eventually his life is going to be taken by the gunfire at Carthage. I am often amazed at what Joseph Smith would endure and be called to face in this life. I don't know about you, but my problems pale in comparison to his. But what effect did that persecution and opposition have on him? In the end, it made a life polished and beautiful and worthy of our admiration. And with that as a backdrop, look at the section heading for section 24. What do we learn is happening to Joseph in the early church? It says that the persecution had become intense in harmony and that the leaders had to seek safety at that time. It also adds that this and the following revelations were given to strengthen and encourage and instruct them. So that's how I like to approach section 24. I ask my students to read section 24 looking for truths that can help us in times of persecution or affliction or trial and see what they find. Here are a few possible ideas that could be brought up. In verse 1, I have lifted thee up out of thine afflictions and have counseled thee, that thou hast been delivered from all thine enemies, and thou hast been delivered from the powers of Satan and from darkness. Exclamation point. One thing that will help us at these times is to remember how God has delivered us in the past. So often our problems take on a new light when seen in hindsight. I know that I've had this experience many times. In the moment, my challenges have seemed so overwhelming, so hard to bear, that I can't see how anything positive or good could ever come from it. But I'm consistently amazed 
that after I have some distance between me and the problem, that I see the silver lining, that I see the blessing, that I see the lesson, that I see the hand of God in those things. So sometimes, considering how God has blessed us through past sufferings can help us to endure our current ones. In verse 3, they're told to go speedily unto the church, and they shall support thee. When things get rough, go to your friends, go to your family, go to your church leaders, go to your ward or branch community. They are there to support us. We aren't meant to endure trials alone. No wonder God's organized us into families. No wonder he emphasizes strong marriages. No wonder he is a church organized into specific communities. God knows life is tough, but he also knows that a rough road is easier to travel with good companions. From verses 3 and 5, Magnify thine office and continue in calling upon God in my name and writing the things which shall be given thee by the Comforter and expounding all scriptures unto the church. So don't stop praying and don't stop fulfilling your duties within the church. Hopefully we don't get the attitude of, well, if God's not going to help me in this, then why should I help him accomplish his work? We've got to continue calling upon him, continue magnifying our office and expounding things. That is going to help us get through those afflictions so much easier. As the church helps us, we help the church. Also from verse 5, there's something else that we can rely on. The Holy Ghost is there to help us. But he doesn't use the title Holy Ghost in that instance, which shouldn't surprise us. God often uses certain titles depending on the context of the revelation. What title is given? The Comforter. One of the Holy Ghost's greatest roles is to comfort us. He's not just about helping us choose the right and confirming truth and guiding us in decisions. He's also been called to comfort in moments just like those. Verse 8, we need to be patient in afflictions and endure them. Sometimes that's all we can do is just endure. We may pray over and over again, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? How do I make this trial go away? What's the answer to my problems? Sometimes I'm afraid that the Lord's answer to that is endure them. There may not be a solution to fix it at that time. There may not be an end in sight. Sometimes we just need to endure pain and affliction and hardship and persecution. So be patient. Be patient with God. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with the situation. Be patient with life. Which I have to admit is not the most comforting of messages. But it's the next line that I think we find the comfort in. The Lord promises, For lo, I am with thee even until the end of thy days. I'm not going to abandon you. I will be ever at your side. I will be experiencing all these things with you throughout your life. In fact, I've been through them myself. I know exactly what you're going through. I wonder if Joseph realized just how many more afflictions he was going to face in the future. This must have been a very foreboding verse to him. Thou shalt have many. 
And that verse is going to come true. Now in verse 10, God starts speaking to Oliver. And he also promises him that he'll be with him to the end. And in verse 12, he promises, I will give unto him strength such as is not known among men. Frequently, this is how God helps us through our trials. He doesn't take them away, but he strengthens us to face them. He can even give us miraculous strength such as is not known among men. God will give us strength to bear up under the suffering. It's reminiscent of the Nephites back in Mosiah who were not freed from their burdens at the moment they probably would have liked. But God did strengthen them and ease their burdens so that they were able to bear up under them without complaining. The burdens were still there, but their capacity to carry them was increased. God can do the same for us. There's going to be some more foreshadowing in these final verses of section 24 of the trials that Joseph Smith is going to face. From verse 16, people will lay their hands upon him by violence. In verse 17, people will go to law with him. In verse 18, there will be times when he will be in need of food and raiment and shoes and money. And in verse 19, there will be times when he will have to prune the vineyard, when there would be individuals close to him that would have to be pruned from the church because of apostasy. The major message to Joseph here, this calling to be a prophet, will be rough. He's going to have a rough road ahead of him. But it will be that rough road that will polish him into a prophet. And Joseph is going to stay true and positive throughout it all. So a great question to liken the scriptures here. How has one of these truths strengthened, encouraged, or instructed you in affliction? The persecution and trial is going to come to all of us. I believe it's impossible to avoid it. And would it even be desirable to avoid all opposition and challenge in life if it were possible? Sometimes I think I pray that way, for God to take away all my affliction. But at the end of it all, do we really want to remain rough, dull stones? Or do we want to be beautifully polished like Joseph was? I'm afraid the only way to accomplish this is to come into contact with other hard objects. To have a corner here and a corner there knocked off by the adversity and roughness of life. That process is certainly going to require some patience and endurance. But we won't have to endure it alone. We have some help, just like Joseph had help. And if we hang on like he did, we too will have beautiful, polished lives worthy of admiration. Section 25. I think you know that I'm a big fan of the game chess, and I consistently see great life lessons taught by the game. One interesting aspect of the game is that each piece has a relative value and power in the game. Pawns are not very powerful and don't carry a huge value, so they're often sacrificed for position or used to create a structure from which to protect the more important pieces of the game. The king, of course, is a very critical piece in the game. If your king is captured, you lose. But I often like to remind people, especially females, 
of the most powerful piece in the game of chess. Do you know which one it is? It's the queen. She has the most versatility. She can move the fastest and the farthest in all directions. Most games are won by using the unique abilities of the queen in conjunction with the other supporting pieces. Usually it's the queen that's at the center of the action. She's putting pressure on the enemy king, rescuing pieces under attack, making captures, forcing retreats. She is the piece on the board. And many players will resign the game if they inadvertently lose their queen. It's usually just not even worth trying after that. And though the king is the overall focus of your opponent's attack, the king spends most of his time cowering in the corner and fleeing from attacking pieces like a scared rabbit. It's the queen that's making things happen and winning the game. Women should love the game of chess. It communicates the power of women. Perhaps God is a chess fan, because the same principle seems to be true of life. God knows the power and influence that righteous women can have in his battle against evil. God's queens are absolutely vital to his victory strategy. So here we have section 25, the revelation directed to Emma, Joseph's wife. This is a wonderful opportunity to talk about righteous women. Now, I do believe that this revelation can apply to both men and women, just like many of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants directed to specific men also apply to both genders. Indeed, the final verse of this section reminds us that this message is unto all. But since this is a unique revelation directed to a woman, I like to focus it in that direction. The theme phrase that I would highlight is found in verse 3. How does the Lord describe Emma? He calls her an elect lady. I like both those terms. Elect means to be chosen to serve. And we see that in the root word for election. I also like the term lady here. I think that suggests, like elect, somebody that is different, chosen. Not better than others, not of more worth, but different in a good way. Women of Christ are more than just your average woman. They are ladies. Just like the word gentleman suggests something more than just your average man. And I do believe deeply in this principle. Even though you run the risk of putting pressure on those who profess to follow Christ. But the scriptures are fairly clear that disciples of Christ are different. We should stand out from the world. Now I do hesitate a little to teach this topic and, and this section. And I admit that I'm probably not as qualified to speak about those not of my gender as they would be. Perhaps an elect lady would be more fit to speak about this. But I'm going to give it a shot, as unbiasedly as I can, and I'll try to represent what the scriptures say and strive to steer clear of my own personal opinions. Still, it's very possible that some of you could walk away from this section of the video saying, well, he's a man, what does he know? And you may very well be justified in your conclusion. But that being said, I do want to be clear about one thing. I'm not going to be politically correct on this one. I do believe that men and women are different, that God has made us different for a divine purpose. 
I stand firmly behind the prophet's words that state that gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. I know that the world is trying to make men and women the same. And I reject that idea. I believe that men and women are equal in value and worth and potential and should have equal opportunities presented to them in this life. But I do not believe that they're the same or have the exact same roles. I believe that generally speaking, men and women have been given gifts and qualities unique to their sex that complement and strengthen the other. It just seems to me that society is waging a war against the very idea of femininity. But with that as a disclaimer, let's take a look. Here's how I would approach this section as a class. After introducing the theme of becoming an elect lady, I would ask all to read the entire section looking for phrases that describe the qualities that make an elect lady and fill out the worksheet, this handout, with the things that they find. What is she like? What does she do? An elect lady, blank. And just fill in those boxes with counsel from section 25. And I would be sure to help them understand that this is not a set of standards to condemn themselves by, but a set of standards to be inspired by. We've got to be careful not to be drawn into the trap of toxic perfectionism, but to look for inspiration and guidance in these standards. So here's a few ideas. An elect lady knows she is a daughter of God. She values that relationship with her Father in heaven. She looks to him as a father, as he looks to her as his daughter. There's a special kind of relationship between fathers and daughters. And I know that I've felt it. I have three sons and one daughter. And I can tell you, it's different. It's beautiful. I love that connection that I have with her. And I find joy in it. I'm certain that God feels the same for his daughters and cherishes that unique relationship with them. An elect lady is faithful. She nourishes and cares for her testimony and seeks to grow it year by year. An elect lady walks in the paths of virtue. I like that the word is paths, that it's plural. The word virtue has more than one meaning. Usually when we think of virtue, we think of chastity or sexual purity. And certainly chastity is an important quality of elect ladies. But virtue can mean other things as well. Think of the 13th article of faith. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. This is what an elect lady seeks for. In her choices of entertainment, music, literature, dress, language, and environment, she seeks those things that are virtuous and good. An elect lady murmurs not because of the things which she has not seen or things that are withheld. This verse doesn't specifically tell us what Emma has not seen, but I think we can probably make an educated guess as to what it's referring to. Emma was not chosen to be a witness of the gold plates. And you could make a very good case that she should have had that opportunity. Why not Emma? She was there at the Hill Cumorah when Joseph first went to get them. She stood beside Joseph throughout the entire translating process. She even helped scribe for Joseph for a time. We were told that there were times when Emma would be cleaning and there would be the plates on the table under a cloth. She must have had incredible self-restraint 
not to take a quick peek at the plates. She might have wondered why it was Mary Whitmer that got a chance to see the plates and not her. Certainly, the reason isn't that she wouldn't have been a capable and faithful witness. And Emma will stand as a witness to her dying day of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and her husband's prophetic call. But she never sees the plates. An elect lady does the same when it comes to things that she feels worthy of obtaining and things that she certainly would be capable of fulfilling. When there are desired blessings that she can't understand why the Lord's withholding them, sometimes it can be very difficult to avoid murmuring. An elect lady comforts her spouse with consoling words as her husband supports her. Joseph would be a comfort and consoling presence for the church, and Emma was a comfort and consoling presence for Joseph. When we consider all that Joseph and Emma endured and experienced together, I think it's safe to say that neither could have done it alone. They needed each other. The church needed them. They were the parents of the church, and each had their divine role and influence in leading it. Emma was often a catalyst for Joseph's revelations. Emma's comforting and consoling would allow the heavens to be opened and revelations to be received. In fact, some of the greatest revelations of the Restoration, sections 121, 122, and 123, are going to come when Joseph is languishing in Liberty Jail. Those revelations could not have come without Emma's influence. Before Joseph received the oft-quoted divine answer of, My son, peace be unto thy soul, he tells us that he had received a letter from Emma, as well as some others. He says, We received some letters last evening, one from Emma, one from Don Carlos, and one from Bishop Partridge, all breathing a kind and consoling spirit. We were much gratified with their contents. We had been a long time without information, and when we read those letters, they were to our souls as the gentle air is refreshing. Those who have not been enclosed in the walls of a prison without cause or provocation can have but little idea how sweet the voice of a friend is. One token of friendship from any source whatever awakens and calls into action every sympathetic feeling. It brings up in an instant everything that is past. It seizes the present with the vivacity of lightning. It grasps after the future with the fierceness of a tiger. It retrogrades from one thing to another until finally all enmity, malice, and hatred, and past differences, misunderstandings, and mismanagements lie slain, victims at the feet of hope. And when the heart is sufficiently contrite, then the voice of inspiration steals along and whispers, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thy afflictions shall be but a small moment. That's the lead-in to that verse. Emma's consoling words created an atmosphere and spirit that allowed the Lord to reveal some of the most powerful words of Latter-day Revelation. What a beautiful example of Emma fulfilling section 25, verse 5. Before moving on, we should note that this is not a one-way street, that a wife is only to comfort and support her husband. Take a look at the balancing phrase in verse 9. And thou needest not fear, for thy husband shall support thee in the church. As wives support and console their husbands, so too should husbands support and console their wives. An elect lady has the spirit of meekness, the Lord says this twice to Emma, once in verse 5 and again in verse 14. 
that must mean that this was of particular importance for Emma to follow. Meekness does not mean weakness. Moses was described as being the meekest man to ever live. Do you picture Moses as being a weak man? I don't think so. This is the man that's going to stand before the most powerful political figure of his day and demand that he let his people go. This was the man that would part the Red Sea. Moses had great power, but he always kept it under control. That's my favorite definition of meekness. Great power under control. Elect ladies have great power. Like the queens in chess, they have been given it as a gift. But God would have them keep it under control and use it wisely. The opposite of meekness is pride. And the Lord warns Emma of this as well in verse 14. Pride can destroy marriages and friendships. It's meekness and humility that recognizes the worth of all souls and seeks to build rather than tear down. An elect lady goes at the time of his going. I'm intrigued by this phrase and ponder how it's to be applied. Definitely, Emma went with Joseph at the time of his going. As they were forced to move from state to state, as persecution seemed to follow them wherever they went, Emma was always there by her husband's side. She was there to visit him in prison. She was there to scrape the tar and feathers from his body. She was there to tend to his wounds and discouragements. She was there to mourn with him, and she was there to rejoice with him. She made incredible sacrifices to stand by her husband. She went with him at the time of his going. And this reminds me of my own dear wife. When I was hired by the church to teach seminary, I remember driving with my wife to the church office building to receive our first assignment. On the way, I remember telling her that the chances were that we would be assigned to the Wasatch Front, since the majority of full-time positions are there. But that there was a chance that we could also be assigned to Idaho, Nevada, Wyoming, or in Arizona. And I remember Alicia saying that she would be willing to go anywhere, but that she just didn't want to go to Arizona. Anywhere but Arizona. She didn't want to be far from her family, and she didn't want to be in the heat. When we arrived at the church office building, we received our assignment. And it was to Arizona. And I am forever grateful for a wife who went with me at the time of my going, regardless of her personal preference and desires. And this is shared with all due respect to the state of Arizona and all the amazing people there. We both cherish our experiences and the relationships that we created in our 14 years there. But that sacrifice wasn't always easy for my wife. And I will forever be grateful that she was willing to go at the time of my going. It's important to note that this is also a two-way street. It's not always that one direction. An elect lady expounds scriptures and exhorts the church. I love that the Lord tells Emma that she has to do more than just learn the scriptures or listen to the revelations. She is to expound and exhort them to others. Expound and exhort are two words that we saw back in section 20 to describe the responsibilities of the priesthood. Men and women have a similar calling in this area. Spencer W. Kimball said, I stress again the deep need each woman has to study the scriptures. We want our homes to be blessed with sister scriptorians, whether you are single or married, young or old, widowed or living in a family. After all, who has any greater need to treasure up the truths of the gospel, on which they may call in their moments of need, than do women and mothers who do so much nurturing and teaching? 
An elect lady's time is given to writing and learning much. Elect ladies are educated. They seek learning. And I think that means spiritual learning and secular learning. Later in the Doctrine and Covenants, we're going to see that God encourages all his children to seek both because the glory of God is intelligence. I'm grateful for a wife that is very intelligent and loves learning. Formal schooling, reading, watching documentaries, and travel has educated her mind. She's enriched her life and the life of her family through her much learning. We should also seek to increase our spiritual learning. And I'm not too worried about you as my listeners on this one because you've cared enough about your spiritual education to seek out a channel such as this one. You are making your spiritual learning a priority, and I commend you for that. Gospel knowledge is infinitely deep and compelling, and I can promise you that you will never run out of things to learn when it comes to the gospel. An elect lady lays aside the things of this world and seeks for the things of a better. And this counsel can be applied in a number of ways. An elect lady does not have the same priorities and desires of the women of the world. She's guided by a higher perspective, an eternal perspective. She lays up for herself treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. The way the world defines success is not going to be the same way that God defines it. Family, righteousness, nurture, learning, service are always going to trump the more worldly treasures of power, money, popularity, physical appearance, and worldly success. Mortality is fleeting, and its treasures are the kind that moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. The elect lady knows this. An elect lady uses her special gifts to bless the church. Verses 11 and 12 particularly apply to Emma as she's directed to create the first hymn book of the church. But there's a general idea behind that. The elect lady uses her unique gifts to bless the church. Each woman has something special to contribute. For some it may be music. For others it may be leadership. For others it's service or teaching or, or any number of other things. No woman can be all those things. So she seeks to find her own unique gifts to contribute and then she offers them selflessly. An elect lady lifts up her heart and rejoices. Elect ladies are righteous, and since righteousness always was happiness, that would suggest that they, too, are happy in general. That's not to suggest that they wear rose-colored glasses or that they never face times of sadness or mourning or discouragement. One of our baptismal commitments is to mourn with those that mourn, and even Jesus wept. But hopefully, they lift people, they find joy and rejoicing in the gospel and in the good things of life. Ezra Taft Benson said, Be cheerful in all that you do. Live joyfully. Live happily. Live enthusiastically, knowing that God does not dwell in gloom and melancholy, but in light and love. An elect lady cleaves to her covenants. One definition of the word cleave is to adhere strongly to. The elect lady sticks strongly to her covenants and promises. She values them. She partakes of the sacrament worthily and meaningfully. She makes time to worship in the temple. An elect lady's soul delights in her husband. And, and what a wonderful word, to delight in one's spouse. Husbands and wives should delight in each other. 
I love it when my wife and I can spend time with each other, going out to dinner, watching a movie or a play together, hiking, camping, doing fun things with our children, discussing future plans and laughing together. These are delightful moments in my life, and I'm so grateful that I have someone to share them with. An elect lady keeps the commandments continually. And of course, obedience is a quality that all true disciples of Christ share. An elect lady can't expect to lift up her heart and rejoice if she's not keeping the commandments. That quality is dependent on this one. Now, I recognize that this list can be both inspiring and intimidating. But notice that there's nothing in there that tells her that she has to be everything to everybody, that she has to sacrifice herself so completely that she never has time for herself or her development or her rest, that her house is always clean, that she bakes her own bread, that she never gets upset or frustrated, that she has perfect children, that her hair and makeup are always immaculate, that she makes crafts and sews her own dresses and gets to the gym every day and is an active member of the PTA and always carries an aura of order, organization, and having everything under control. That, I'm afraid, is a standard that nobody can live up to. Expecting that level of perfection in oneself will most likely do more damage than good. With all of those wonderful instructions that are found here in section 25, don't forget this one from section 10. Do not run faster or labor more than you have strength. Remember that becoming an elect lady is a lifelong endeavor. Now what's the Lord's blessing and promise to those who strive to become elect ladies? A crown of righteousness thou shalt receive. What kind of women wear crowns? Queens princesses. That's who you will become. Just like in section 121 verse 46 where God promises that men will have an unchanging scepter of righteousness. Women are promised a crown. Both are images of royalty. The suggestion is that the sons and daughters of God will become kings and queens in the eternities. Remember the power that queens have. Great blessings await those righteous women who walk the paths of virtue, seek to comfort and console rather than complain, those that expound and exhort and devote their time to learning and rejoice in seeking for the things of a better world. We can't expect to win our battles against evil as families, as a church, or as a society if we don't value and wield the power of the queens. So our truth here, elect ladies have great responsibilities, great powers, and great blessings that await them. Well, there are two last principles that I'd like to talk about a little more quickly. Sometimes I like to do a special lesson that revolves solely around one verse, section 25, verse 12, which says the following, For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. The first question I ask for my students is to identify truths about sacred music that are taught by this verse. Some of the ones that I see, when we sing sacred music, it brings Heavenly Father joy. 
Singing sacred music is like saying a prayer to our Heavenly Father. Singing and listening to sacred music will bring us blessings. And the song of the heart is more important than the song of the voice. And I love it that the scripture says that the Lord delights in the song of the heart and not always the mouth. I am not one of those people who has been blessed with an angelic voice. I can't carry a tune in a wheelbarrow. Just ask my students. And I have great admiration and gratitude for those that can. But I do enjoy singing the hymns. And as a seminary teacher, I get to sing hymns five times a day. And over the years, that really adds up. And you know what? I've never gotten tired of them. They are inspiring, comforting, and instructional. And I believe that singing the hymns is a wonderful way to express what we feel in our hearts. The way that we sing them, the way that we feel when we sing them, may become some of the deepest prayers we will ever offer. Oftentimes, hymns allow us to express things that we sometimes just don't have the words to express. I can't think of a better way of expressing the way I feel about my Savior than by singing Abide With Me. I can't think of a better way of expressing my love and enthusiasm for the prophetic mission of Joseph Smith than by belting out praise to the man. I can't think of a better way to connect with my heritage than by singing For the Strength of the Hills, a hymn written by my Waldensian ancestors, or Come, Come Ye Saints, as I contemplate the sacrifices of my pioneer ancestors that crossed the plains. The hymns also motivate me. I can't think of a better way of inspiring myself to go out and serve others than by singing A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, or to share the gospel by singing Called to Serve, or to increase my feelings of gratitude than by singing Count Your Blessings. I cherish singing primary songs to my young children every night. I am a child of God, beautiful Savior. I love to see the temple. My Heavenly Father loves me. These are songs that I still love singing with childlike fervor. I'm so grateful for those dedicated primary choristers who taught me these simple expressions of faith. And I'd like to share a personal experience with you that taught me the meaning of the song of the heart. Sometimes in seminary, I like to hold a seminary conference. And this is where I have my students prepare talks and musical numbers to share with their classmates. I always want these to be very uplifting and meaningful experiences. And I'm often careful about who I ask to present. Well, one year I asked if there were any volunteers who were interested in sharing a musical number. Almost immediately, a young man in my class shot his hand up and said he wanted to sing. And I'm not proud of this, but my initial thought and feeling was, oh no, this is not going to be good. You see, this boy, he had a bit of a speech issue and some social challenges that I feared might detract from the meeting. I was more worried about the quality of the conference than this young man's enthusiasm to share his testimony through music. But gratefully, on the outside, I said, you bet, and uh, we'd love to have you sing for us, and I signed him up. But on the inside, I was worried. Well, the day of the conference came, and he came to the podium to sing A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, and I was bracing myself for what I was sure would be a disaster. Instead, he sang the most heartfelt and inspiring musical number of the day. He was not a talented singer, but what he lacked in musical ability, he more than made up for in heart and faith and spirit. 
It was moving. And I wasn't the only one who could feel it. I looked around and the entire seminary was transfixed and lifted by his testimony through singing. That's when the Spirit chastised me a little bit. Don't judge, it seemed to whisper. My soul delighteth in the song of the heart. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. That musical number was a prayer, and we were all blessed by it. Now, if you want a great activity that's simple and uplifting to do with your class, all you need to do is ask them to share one of their favorite hymns or primary songs and be prepared to share why. Then treat it kind of like a testimony meeting. Invite them to come up voluntarily to share their thoughts and feelings. And after each person is shared, sing at least one verse of that hymn. Now you'll need to be prepared with the music, which is much easier nowadays because you can just download the church's sacred music app and play that music as you sing. And I can promise you that this will be an edifying experience for you and your class. And it will delight our Heavenly Father, and it will be answered with a blessing. One other quick idea for section 26. From verse 2, And all things shall be done by common consent in the church. To introduce the principle of common consent, I do the following activity. What does a raised hand mean here? And here, and here, and here. What about here? I've often found that there are a number of students who feel that the purpose of a sustaining raise of the hand is like casting a vote. You're saying that you think it's okay for that person to serve in that calling or be ordained to that office. And if enough people raised their hand to oppose, then that person wouldn't be called to that calling. But that's not the spirit of it. No, the person being sustained isn't on trial. It's us that's on trial. The sustaining vote is to give you a chance to express your willingness to comply with and support the Lord's choice. I usually share this quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley. The procedure of sustaining is much more than a ritualistic raising of the hand. It's a commitment to uphold, to support, and to assist those who have been selected. The sustaining vote is giving us a chance to express our willingness or unwillingness to uphold the Lord's leaders and decisions. Well, thank you for joining me today. I hope you found this valuable. And if you did, I encourage you to share it with somebody that you feel it could help. If you're interested in the slide presentation that I used here, or the handouts that I make, or a lesson plan that follows what we talked about, go to teachingwithpower.com and you're going to find links to those resources. If you haven't subscribed yet, I hope you will. Hit the like button, make a comment. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.